time to take control of your money, your health, your time, and your life. I'm Jeff Neighbors. I'm Rachel Neighbors. Welcome to Self-Directed Life. Yes, welcome. And today we're going to talk about farmland. Um, you know, par- farmland investment, it might seem like a foreign concept, even if you're familiar with real estate investing, but direct investments into farmland, they can present a really compelling opportunity. Um, you know, farmland offers stable returns on investment, and there's a low correlation to traditional assets, you know, stocks, bonds, equities, and farmland can also provide a hedge to inflation too. Yeah, a lot of people want that uncorrelated asset. Yeah, it's really important. And historically, you know, investors have probably had limited access to farmland as an investment. I don't think anyone that we know or knew had farmland in their portfolio since farmland like you know, commercial real estate, it's relatively illiquid. And I think this is the big one. It used to have a really high cost to entry. Right. Um, But with our guest today, um, Farm Together, there is that high barrier to entry no longer exists. So we're going to discuss farmland investing today uh, with Artem Milinchuk, founder and CEO of Farm Together. Definitely. We're going to talk about what makes farmland attractive, uh, how to reap the the benefits of farmland in a portfolio and how to get access to this $2.5 trillion U.S. farmland market. Uh, We'll cover historical performance, uh, which that's very interesting. I was really liking the numbers he was talking about um, and how the common investor can get this historical performance in their portfolio previously unavailable. And of course, how it compares to other asset classes, real estate, stocks, bonds, et cetera. You know, if you were to put farmland in your portfolio, what other asset class should you maybe consider uh, coming from? We'll do a deep dive on its similarities and differences to real estate in general. Which is big, I think. Of course. And of course, we'll talk about the compatibility of self-directed IRA and solo 401k accounts to invest in farmland. Thanks so much for joining us, Artem. Welcome. Thank you, Rachel. Great to be, uh, to be here. Awesome. Well, let's just jump right in here. Um, Artem, in your view, how has COVID-19 impacted financial markets and what sort of investment implications do you see as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, so we have seen COVID do quite a number on financial markets, both down and then up. <laughs> um, so the, I mean, the collapse in the markets really seems almost unprecedented how quickly it fell down. I was in the financial markets in 2008-9 and you know, at some point it was definitely more dire than that time. But then I think we also, at least on the financial side, learned from that. And so the response from the Fed, the government has been very forceful. And the markets have, have rallied, I mean, just skyrocketed back to the point that some people are worried about bubbles, inflation, and we see gold being you know, approaching $2,000. So there's, uh, you know, depending how you look at it, you know, recovery or dislocations in the market. And we have seen some sectors such as real estate, uh, airports, hotels, um, to a certain extent, probably permanently impaired, never to recover. Uh, and that just once again, you know, sorry to sort of speak my book, as they say, once again, highlights the important of, importance of diversification, which is just another way to say, look, stay humble. You don't know the future. Commercial real estate, um, high-grade New York offices used to be considered, you know, better than bonds. There's nothing better than a great office in New York. Where is that now? <laughs> no one could have predicted this. And so I think it's just, um, if you're investing for the long term, you just have to stay humble and not think that you're the smartest person in the world. <laughs> and the financial markets have shown that again and again and will, I'm sure, in the future. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. Um, so if you're kind of, 
looking then say longer term, what sort of long-term trends with investments do you think are going to emerge from COVID-19? Yeah, so I think like the obvious trends of remote work, um, less travel, uh, were already happening before COVID, and this was just a crash course in this um, kind of in this new reality. And so the obvious winners, you know, Zoom um, that we're on right now, uh, Loom, uh, which is kind of a, a earlier um, a startup that is more for recording in Chrome. Uh, other remote working companies, I mean, they, they're going to obviously do well. But beyond that, I think we'll see uh, the emergence and reemergence of the small to medium-sized towns and the rural economy. Because now if you can work from anywhere, you don't need to be crammed in your tiny apartment in New York, in your ultra-expensive you know, uh, Harry Potter closet in San Francisco. Uh, it's really you can be anywhere and doing doing that work. And so... Look, there's a lot to like about uh, kind of rural living, uh, huge houses, backyards, being able to have pets, uh, roaming around uh, nature. And so I think that's going to be, I mean, already we're seeing this as the, the exodus from the, the big cities back to the small and mid-sized towns. And honestly, I think it's long overdue. I really hope that this also will solve things like climate change, housing crisis, like so many things will just hopefully get better. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm an optimist, <laughs> otherwise I wouldn't be a founder, but I do hope this will be, there'll be a big silver lining and, you know, this undoubtedly a big, big tragedy and a crisis on the planet. Yeah, you hit a lot of points there. Uh, I got to say from my talks with people in the Bay Area and New York, there really is a mass exodus to the point where even just in May, very early on, the year-over-year rents were down 10%. And then I know people in Oakland who just sold a house and they sold it in record time above the asking price because that's kind of the first stop for the really impatient people in the exodus <laughs> coming out of the Bay Area. Just give me anything but, but San Francisco and then they uh, buy in Oakland. So I, I definitely have seen a lot in that. And of course taking care of our planet, getting onto a sustainable path is something I think everyone's thinking about. You know, I almost feel like a lot of people are at home a lot more. They're kind of ripped outside of all their normal daily patterns and they have a lot more time to think about things. And of course, some people are just in the downward spiral of like mainstream media and social media and maybe not the healthiest way. Whereas uh, I think a lot of people though are taking this time to really reevaluate right sure i mean like people are rethinking their whole lives right. obviously the just go get a degree and work a career for 40 years and get a gold watch and then get your retirement paid for you etc is just not happening but neither is go to the grocery store you know shake hands with people all the products are on the shelf etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean really we've never seen a time where our normal way of life has been disrupted in so many different ways. Who would have thought that someone in San Francisco would go from saying a rural area is flyover states to all of a sudden moving there in such a brief period of time? Yeah, indeed. And yeah, I never liked that dismissive phrase, you know, flyover states. <laughs> uh, and I hope that the yeah, other people now from coastal towns, when they move there, they'll quickly understand, you know, the, the many appeals that exist and you know they think that 
they live in New York and it's kind of the pinnacle of things. But then people in, in small areas, they, they look at that and go, why would these people torture themselves <laughs> cramped in these tiny yeah. apartments? <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's a, we, we've had a, there's been a lot of uh, issues, right? A lot of stresses in the country. And sometimes it takes a crisis, right? Same as in health, like literally where you, have a heart attack and you start exercising, eating well, and maybe re-discovering re, re the importance of a lot of different social relationships, you know, going back to France to things that matter. And so I really hope that this will be a bit of that for the country in general as well. Certainly has been here you know, for me and for my friends. Right. Yeah. So I know a lot of real estate investors, okay, you know, throwing around all the terms, single family, duplex, cap rate, yada, yada. But I don't think very many of them have done farmland investing. So what exactly is farmland investing and how does farm together work? Yeah, so I think uh, mentioning real estate is a good, a great starting point. In a lot of ways, farmland behaves like real estate, but in other ways it doesn't. So let me start with the similarities of real estate. Um, and just before I jump in a little bit on the farmland market in general, just to set the landscape, the context. So farmland is a $2.5 trillion market in the United States. That's the value of farmland. Uh, almost all of it, 98%, is owned by families. So it's not large corporations. It's not billionaires. It's really a very fragmented, mostly small and medium-sized farms. 60% uh, of farmland is uh, what's called owner-operated farms. It means there's a farmer who owns the land, and then they also uh, farm it. The remaining 40% of that farmland, 38%, uh, is rented out. Um, and so it's a very common practice to rent land, to farm it. And the ownership of that rented land is also, could be the same farmer that is renting out some of their land, could be a retired farmer, could be, the, you know, the descendants of the farmer who happen to still own land and rent it out. But it's very much an informal kind of ownership and investment um, type uh, market, meaning that, sorry, non-formalized investment type market, meaning that you don't really um, go online to your broker, you know, Charles Schwab or Fidelity or Robin Hood and invest into a piece of land. So it's, it's very, very hard, and we'll talk about why, but to really for someone from the street to come in and suddenly invest into a lot of different farmland. And so the way it works is that it is a rental model in a lot of cases. So you buy the land, you rent it out to a farmer, um, and you collect those rental checks. And then there's also, uh, with farmland, what's remarkable is, you know, as they say, they don't make it anymore. And at the same time, population is uh, increasing, diets are improving, which is great, but that's putting a strain on a fixed supply of land. You know, I saw an article recently saying, buy gold fed because fed cannot print it <laughs> uh, well buy land because fed cannot print it either and that's what's driving and has been driving the long-term price appreciation in farmland so in the last 50 years the average has been about 5.9 percent now we don't think this is going to be the case for the next uh you know uh how many years but we do think it's still going to be a very healthy uh three four percent price appreciation long term maybe even a little higher approaching you know, that six or more in certain areas in certain geographies with certain operators so um you know altogether when we think about farmland as an asset class um the historical returns there have been about 12 percent. that's been roughly rent and price appreciation since 1970 
or about 10, 10 and a half percent the last uh, 20, uh, 30 years. Um, and so that's kind of where the real estate part comes in, which is, you know, you buy a building, you rent it out, you buy a farm, you rent it out. Um, so where the, that similarity ends is that unlike in real estate, you actually construct your lease or your farm um, rental that you participate in the business of the farmer. So let's just imagine you open, you know, you buy a storefront storefront property somewhere in Main Street, uh, you rent it out to Starbucks. Uh, Starbucks is not going to give you a percentage of the Starbucks revenue. <laughs> uh, you get a fixed uh, rent and that's it. But you're also not exposed to whatever happens to Starbucks, to the coffee prices, to the traffic. Um, in farmland, you have that type of setup, which is a straight up cash lease. Typically, you can expect to receive maybe 2 to 5%, but it's incredibly stable. There's always a lot of farmers looking to rent. It's a highly, highly predictable income. So um, that would be your conservative case. And as we move up the risk um, kind of curve here, you go to uh, a fixed lease plus a revenue share. So now you have exposure to the harvest yields and the harvest prices, uh, profit share, which is now you have exposure to the profit of the farm. So if the farmer did well, managed the expenses well, you have higher profit. If not, you have lower profit. And then the, the most kind of involved, the highest in terms of risk and return is what's called a direct operated farm. Where there are farming families who have made it their business to actually farm to a spec, farm to a contract. Those farmers, those families, they don't want to have exposure to the uh, product prices. They don't want to have exposure to weather. They don't want to uh, have to worry about the ownership of the land. What they want to do is to use their skill set and the equipment, which is farming, to farm according to the spec be compensated well, spread that over a large acreage versus having to um, kind of do all the risky thing that farming is, right? And so there's a lot of different models and farm together, we have all of those offerings. So you can really pick and choose um, between safer investments and kind of higher return, higher risk investments. So I want to pause here because I know I've said a lot of things <laughs> before I keep going. Yeah, I have sure. a lot of questions about farmland, but before we get into some of those, you know, I really like how you're talking about you have kind of the whole spectrum of risk. So different kinds of investors might gravitate towards different exposures to farmland. Uh, but I'm really curious, what's your background and how did you end up getting involved in farmland? Yeah, so um, I've been in... Um let's see let me just maybe start from the very start so actually as you can tell by a little bit of my accent maybe a lot uh, i was born in russia and uh, moved to canada only when i was 22. Um, in uh, in russia i got my undergrad and my master's in economics and that's because i think finance economics done right can create tremendous prosperity and done wrong and can create tremendous poverty like the one we had in you know, back in the day in soviet union um I always liked food because I think going through a lot of those tectonic changes, right? Soviet Union fell. We had in Russia the 1990s crisis. There was a couple of years that were really bad in terms of food security. And so just that connection to something real, which is farmland and food has always been, um, always been there. And um, when I started my career, it was in finance. I was put in kind of the food industry <laughs> and I really liked it. And so um, from 2004 to 2018, 
I've been mostly uh, around finance and investment in food, farmland, agriculture um, for 10 years from 2007 to 2016, so 2017. Um, I was uh, working for uh, Canadian pension funds. I was working for private equity funds, for family office, with a focus that always has been kind of in that food agriculture space. Um, and so I think what I bring to the table um, in the larger team that is formed together is the understanding of the market from a very broad perspective, uh, all the way from you know from farm to fork, from from farm to the end products, to how the global food um, food systems work, how logistics works, how agriculture works. So really, um, bringing that comp comprehensive understanding of farmland. And the reason I got into the space is that a I wanted to invest into the space myself and just could find very few options. Uh, B my friends were asking me the same as you know, they kept hearing me talk about farmland um, as I was investing into it on behalf of larger institutions like the Ontario teachers. Um, um, so not that they're like the Sprott um, uh, private fund in, in Toronto. Uh, is that how, you know, how safe it is, how attractive it is? And so they wanted to put money there as well. And so there just was very little in, in terms of options. And so as I looked at it, it blew my mind that you have this massive market, right? $10 trillion market globally, 2.5 United States. Um, you know, you have farmers who are in dire need of more than just kind of your standard capital, but creative capital. You have this tectonic changes happening in ownership of farmland because of the average age of farm approaching 60, they're retiring, kids don't want to farm. You have massive uh, needs of the planet in terms of climate, food security, sustainability. And yet there was so little being done, both in terms of capital as well as technical technological approaches to capital and to farmland financing in a way that was representative of what was already being done to a large extent in places like real estate. And so it just seemed like all the stars were aligning um, to to jump in and you know, bring something new and valuable, I hope, to this market. And so that's how Farm Together was started in, in early 2018. This episode is sponsored by Solo401k.com. Solo401k is a special retirement plan for entrepreneurs. Your Solo401k can unlock your retirement funds to invest directly in alternative investments, such as real estate, precious metals, Bitcoin, private equities, private debt, startups, and more. You can combine alternative investments with tax-deferred or tax-free growth. You get the tax benefits of a normal IRA or 401k, but with access to alternative investments. Plus, your tax-deductible contributions can be up to $60,000 per year. You can even be your own bank and borrow up to $50,000 tax-free to start or grow a business, pay off debt, buy equipment, gear, or toys, or for any reason. All this using Solo401k.com. To learn more about reducing your taxes, investing in alternatives, and being your own bank to finance your dreams, visit solo401k.com today. So you mentioned kind of like the difficulty in accessing this market. Um, how would you say Farm Together compares to the other ways one might try to invest into farmland? Yeah, so let me kind of answer that by, by also walking you through the history of farmland investing. Okay. Um, so if we go like way, way back to 
you know, the founding of United States and how settlers came here. Uh, you know, you would arrive, you would receive some land, there's the Homestead Act. And when we look at farmland right now, it's this patchwork of small and medium-sized farms. And what would happen is that as the, you know, the farmer aged, they would pass on the land to their kids who would keep farming and that kind of kept going until, you know, the 20th century came roaring in urbanization, everyone moving to the cities. And so one thing that is happening just more in general to give you context is that because of this average age of from farmer approaching 60, we expect, USDA expects, about 70% of farmland, so more than two thirds, is going to change hands in the next 20 years. And a lot of that is going to go on the open market, it's going to go to the children who don't want to farm and who want to sell the land, right? They, they'd like to diversify from suddenly having, you know, most of the inheritance in one piece of land to a more diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds. Um, and so, first of all, I just want to say that before not that much land was available, we just get passed on from generation to generation. Um, but in the kind of 80s, the 90s, this has started getting some attention from uh, initially insurance companies, banks, they happened to land or insure some land. Uh, farmers got in trouble, so they they had to take possession of the land and then they would start developing it and building portfolios. Um, but really up to you know a couple of years ago, most of the farmland investing was done by larger institutions. We're talking Novin, we're talking UBS, Hancock, Prudential, and they would manage land and investing land on behalf of institutions, large pension funds. So if you have a hundred million, you could invest with them. Now, most of us, you know, I don't know about you guys, don't have anywhere close. <laughs> um, and so the the other option that existed was um, two public stocks that own farmland. Um, those are great. They they have diversified portfolios. They're liquid. The thing is that because of the scarcity of investment instruments in farmland, uh, in my view, they're quite bit up. Their prices are fairly high. Um, and then secondly, you can't really pick and choose which land you want. You cannot pick and choose what debt leverage the overall entity that owns land is. There's public company costs. But look, those companies are pioneers and legends, titans in the industry. So um, definitely you know, nothing but respect for the work they've done. And then thirdly, uh, there were smaller private funds that maybe you need a million or more of it quite a bit of money to invest with them. And so really for most people, uh, what you used to in real estate and other places, there wasn't really a lot of options, very few to invest in farmland. So if you have 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, which is still, I know a lot, but um, you couldn't really invest into much. And that's what we wanted to bring is this type of crowdfunding. Um, it's well known in real estate uh, platform, but do the same for farmland. And, you know, we've seen, in the short time that we launched, you know, first deal was less than a year ago. We've definitely seen tremendous traction, a lot of demand from farmers, from landowners, and from investors uh, for this kind of solution. So it's been really exciting and, and uh, very fruitful. <laughs> no, no pun intended. <laughs> you can intend puns if you want. Um, I think I might be connecting some dots here. L let me know if I'm on the right track. But you were mentioning that historically you have these bigger institutional players where, you know, the entry point is this, you know, hundred million dollar net worth client making a, writing a large check and then pooling those funds together. I think earlier you mentioned something, some statistics around the fragmentation of the market. Is there a, a certain segment 
of the farmers that are aging, whose uh, farms are of a size that these big institutional investors not, might not be able to even spend time to look at because of the deal size? Yeah, that's look. That's a great point. Um, when we look at the farmland market and specifically the harvested cropland market, which is your your crops, because the other, other part of the market is pastureland, which is about nine hundred billion a trillion. It's a little tricky to count, but uh, so we're working with the one point five trillion dollar market. And when we look at that market, almost seventy percent of that, actually more. Um, is in farms less than $10 million in value, less than $5 million in value. Uh, and we're talking, this is so most of the market. And you're right in that for an institution, they just are not set up technologically, culturally, business-wise to really do those deals. And nor should they. I mean, they do great with larger farms. They have great returns. Um, and that's the segment they play in. But we have this dominant share of the market that on the one hand, doesn't have attention of institutional investors. On the other hand, is oftentimes too big for other farmers to invest in, or what often happens, they're just not interested to buy land, they're interested to rent. And so you have a bit of this orphaned kind of middle child that is not too small, not too big, <laughs> but it's just right for us. And that's kind of the market that we, we play in. And I'm thinking, you know, for someone that it's certainly a compelling case for farmland. Um, for someone that's maybe not had this type of exposure before, how does farmland compare to traditional investments like stocks and bonds? Yeah, so um, let me talk a little bit about that and the statistics around it. When we look at investing in general, you typically, if you are kind of investing for your financial goals, then you want to build a diversified portfolio. Um, and you know, I can keep going on and on. That's my favorite team, diversified portfolios, just because they truly work and do wonders over the long term. And when you're building a diversified portfolio, you want to have a lot of different things. There's stocks and bonds, of course, but increasingly alternatives, whether it's you know, real estate is the only one, uh, private credit, farmland, I think, is a, is a great addition to that. Um, and so I'll talk about risk, return, and, and also correlation of the different asset classes to show that um, it's ideally when you add a little bit of everything, when you get that truly diversified low-risk portfolio. So when we look at farmland from 1992 to 2018, the return there was about 12%, which is quite high. Uh, for comparison, uh, stocks, international stocks, US stocks have only uh, done about 7-8%. Um, now, it, it may kind of sound a little bit um, unexpected, because you look at the S&P 500, you look at Tesla, and you go like, wow, no, those things return 5x. So it's very important to note that we're talking about an asset class, not some individual stocks. Of course, individual mm -hmm. stocks can return many times. Um, but do you know which ones? <laughs> and so that kind of brings us to the second point, which is volatility of your returns, which is from that average return, how much do returns deviate on a per-year basis? Um, and farmland looks quite attractive there. So the volatility has been only 7%, which is um, lower than stocks, a little bit higher than bonds. And so then when we look at you know, what professionals call the sharp ratio, which is just returns divided by volatility, uh, farmland has a sharp ratio of almost 1.7, which is quite attractive. So it means for every quote-unquote unit of risk, you get to reap 1.7 unit of benefit. So that's kind of what 
uh, you know, I can tell you uh, myself uh, working at a big pension fund, that's how we would look at portfolio composition and returns of investments. Um, and now lastly, correlation. So what it means is that you want things that move in separate ways so that overall your portfolio returns are smoothed out without sacrificing too much of the, um, of the return. And what it does is that um, as your portfolio is smoothed out, you have more predictability. You can pull money from sectors that are overperforming, put them in sectors that are underperforming. And so when you talk to professional financial advisors, you talk to wealth managers, I mean, they will just go on and on about diversification. It's not just me. Um, and when we look at that, then Farmland has this remarkable quality of being virtually zero correlated to most other asset classes. In fact, negative correlated to some. Um, so mostly it's most heavily it's correlated to real estate at 0.4, but a lot of other asset class like stocks, bonds, it's almost zero correlation. In fact, you know, let's just give you specific numbers. The last financial crisis from Q4 2007 to Q4 2009, Farmland was up 23% when the market was down what 50%. Wow. Uh, in this, yeah, it was <laughs> quite something. Um, the you know the the Michael Burry made famous by the movie Big Short after he made his you know Big Short money played by uh, Batman. <laughs> Forget his name. Yeah, the second Christian to last Bale. Batman, Christian Bale. There you go. Yeah, yes, <laughs> the best Batman. Yeah, you say my, uh, you say Michael Burry. We think we think Batman immediately. There you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, he he famously you know sold all his uh, sold close his hedge fund and went to Mountain View and invested all his money into water and I believe farmland. So he knew what was up. Um, and then in this financial crisis in Q1 2020, when the markets were down again, 30, 50%, farmland had its third ever negative quarter uh, since the inception of the farmland index. And it was minus 0.5%. And second quarter, it recovered to roughly kind of that level beginning of the year. So very resilient asset class that has yeah, truly little correlation to anything else. And that's what makes it very attractive to... That down 0.5 is nothing. Yeah, 0.5% yeah. drawdown is a dream when yeah. everything <laughs> else is falling, you know, 30, 40%. Yeah, it's... So, uh, Artem, how would you say, given this sort of risk and reward profile, um, how do you see intelligent investors, you know, using this as a arrow in their quiver when when constructing it so you you take this farmland and then when you combine it with traditional stocks and bonds but then also our listeners are definitely investing in real estate gold bitcoin that sort of thing how do you think they should think about the inclusion of farmland in that portfolio yeah i would say um and this is just my view of course but even how I think about it is that it should be in that alternative investments category in your portfolio. Um, and again, you know, this does not constitute investment advice as they say. Um, but the way I think about it is an alternative investment side. Um, my personal view would be to chop a little bit of real estate and maybe a little bit of bonds uh, where you have that, predictability of cash flows, but also potential for price appreciation. And honestly, that's what we have heard firsthand from our investors when they tell us why they're buying farmland. It'll be inflation protection, which is actually another you know, great characteristic of farmland. It does, it's probably one of the best uh, hedges against inflation, better than gold historically, which is remarkable. Um, so it's that, it's preservation of capital. 
its current income, getting that stable cash flow every year to offset your expenses. And then for that long-term capital appreciation that really can be, you invest in forget, right? It can be there for decades. I mean, we have investors that have invested for uh, 40 years with us. So it's um, yeah, the definitely- The word that comes to mind for me is just predictable, which you know, yeah. a few years ago, predictable, nobody wanted predictable when, when everything seems to go up 20% every year. But when we get reminded of reality and volatility, and sort of the fundamentals with the current financial system, all of a sudden, predictable, much like those flyover states for living, starts to remember how attractive it is. Indeed. I also think, yeah. yeah, and I also think, I mean, predictable makes a lot of sense when, Artem, as you were mentioning, you know, the population is growing and people need to eat and they're not making land anymore. That's right. And that's, you know, to your point about COVID, uh, everything closed and look, there's some short-term dislocation in food prices. But overall, the number of people didn't suddenly change. Now, of course, there is the, you know, the very real reality, just to completely recognize reality, is that there's people dying from COVID, of course, right? Um, but when we look at the 7 billion uh, population, they still have to eat. And so that's why we love about this asset class. It's very defensible and it's very real. It speaks to the core need we have, food and water. Uh, in a lot of ways, investing in farmland is investing indirectly into water. Yeah, I actually have that written now. I was going to ask you about that. But before we kind of follow that thread, um, I wanted to circle back around with you've thrown numbers out uh, as far as like examples. What would you say are typical returns that you see in the farmland asset class? Um, yeah, so the, the typical average returns that for the asset class we would expect long-term would be about 8%, um, which is still quite attractive because when you look at long-term expectations for like stocks and bonds from BlackRock, JP Morgan, um, they're guiding towards something like 5 6%. Uh, so still quite attractive. But within that and within the Farm Together platform, we offer deals that are 7 to 13% net returns of the all fees um, all kinds of expenses. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. So kind of drilling down a little bit on farm together, um, how has COVID-19 impacted your business and, you know, agriculture in general? So agriculture in general, to start with that, there definitely was some very high profile cases of workers getting sick and that's really on, on the, the people that operate and run the farms. That's been very sad to see where they were put without proper protection and cleaning into, into buses, school buses to go to harvest to get to their place of work. Um, and so that's been very sad to see. We've seen high profile cases around meat plants. Um, so really, yeah, very, very sad that uh, that's how those, um, you know, that's workers were treated and that uh, what happened. For us, we deal in small and medium-sized farms. Um, and so by the very nature, they're kind of socially distanced. There's typically only maybe one, two person on the farm. And it's mostly mechanized labor. So it's, it's more of a kind of um, a highly skilled type labor and uh, capable people that are oftentimes, you know, went to universities and, and training programs to operate uh, the farms that we work with. So we haven't seen any meaningful disruption on our farms and our uh, farming business. From the Farm Together Inc. business, the investment side, 
uh, we have seen tremendous interest almost, you know, the, the day that the market started falling off of that rush to safety to farmland. And it hasn't stopped. It just has been accelerating because, you know, Jeff, as you said, people walk up to the fact that stocks don't always go up <laughs> and there is reality to the markets that will assert itself sooner or later. And so people want that predictability, that stability, that diversification. Um, and so, yeah, we're really excited about it. And it's been also really great working with some of the farming families that are expanding their business and we've been the um, source of capital. Um, so it's been exciting to kind of help uh, some of those farmers take advantage of uh, you know this increased availability of capital to them. So kind of getting into practical, you know, investing on the, the Farm Together platform and, you know, obviously regulation-wise, answer what you can, don't answer what you can't. Uh, but just to give people an idea, I think one of the most compelling things out there is to be able to invest in something with smaller amounts of money. That's one thing the stock market's always had going for it. You could just put a few thousand here, 10,000 there. And then obviously writing a you know million dollar check for every investment is out of reach of a lot of people. Um, so where does that sort of like typical deal size and, and maybe minimum investment usually start um, with Farm Together? Yes. So we really want to bring farmland ownership investing to everyone. We want to democratize the asset class. Um, we have this you know, internal kind of mission tagline. We want every American to own a piece of America. The reality is, is that one, the legal um, and administrative costs are high for a startup. Now there's ways around it, Reg CF, Reg A plus. But the second part is that because it's a new type of investment, we also really want to make sure that we're bringing something truly, um, truly special, truly easy to use, and for anyone to understand. And I think we're we're getting there. We're we're quite there. But for now, our investments are still targeted only at, at accredited investors, meaning that you need to have a certain income or net worth to invest. Um, but again, yeah, we're definitely working hard to uh, bring that to the common uh, smaller investor as well. I mean, partially that's why I started. Right, I could I didn't have <laughs> that uh, that money. I couldn't invest in farmland. So. Um, Right now, the deal sizes, the deals we have, the minimum check sizes range from ten to twenty thousand per deal, um, and then we we hope to slowly, probably pilot in twenty twenty one, and more forcefully in twenty twenty two to start opening this up to, to the mass market. Now, the good thing is that SEC is also recognizing that you can't use, uh, you know, one. What's that? What's that saying? <laughs> one broom to measure everyone, one one yardstick for everyone, and. Um, they are working on actually liberalizing, democratizing some of the rules around what constitutes an accredited investor. So let's say a farmer that has been in the industry for decades, I mean, they would know better than anyone else actually <laughs> if they should invest in this farm or not, but they cannot if they don't have that income or that net worth. And so potentially those people might be able to invest in farmland or if you are um, you know, in the finance space. I was talking, you talk to venture capital people and a lot of the associates and the investment people cannot actually invest in the deals they work on, which makes no mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what, what happens there. 
It's exciting to see them sort of coming into the modern age of uh, not using such antiquated rules for some of those um, benchmarks like you were talking about. Yeah, and look, I get that they want to protect people, right? That's yeah. SEC always comes from the point of we want to protect someone like your grandma. But the thing is, you know, when they ask me, like, would I put my grandma's money, my grandparents' money, my mom's money <laughs> into this investment as a saving? Like, yes, hell yes. And mm-hmm. in fact, I do because it's it's a one thing about farmland, it's it's a real asset and you need to, I don't know, uh, trees are insured, right? You have insurance, you have crop insurance. Um, uh, it, there are farms in the United States that have been farms for centuries. And so you really need to try very hard to destroy the value in the land when you come dump nuclear waste there. And I think that safety and preservation of capital hopefully will bode well for uh, this asset class being suitable to everyone's your retirement portfolios, your kids' college fund, your kind of long-term, um, long-term portfolio. Uh, and so, yes, definitely excited to see SEC recognizing that and taking action. So, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the intent, the intent is obviously there to protect people, but man, you just see these stories left and right that the actual you know, these, these laws that were written before computers, let alone the internet, you know, whether or not they're still protecting people is, uh, you know, is very, very questionable. Yeah. I mean, like the, what comes to mind is that Hertz deal that just happened oh, where yeah. um, Hertz was noticing, so they filed for bankruptcy, which means that their stock should be worth zero because their bondholders won't be made whole and their stock, mm-hmm. nothing will be left for the stockholders. Yet, you know, some people were pumping it and uh, <laughs> yeah. it was going up. And then so Hertz went, well, why don't we just go ahead and file the necessary documents to tell the SEC that we're going to print more stock and sell it to these people who clearly want it for some reason. And they, I remember reading the documents and the document said, like literally the bottom line was, this is a terrible investment. It has a value of definitely zero. And, um, you know, then the SEC had to admit that the problem was that these rules causing Hertz to file this document with the SEC saying it's worth zero, the SEC knew that that wasn't going to stop the kinds of people who were buying Hertz because they weren't looking at the documents or doing any sort of real due diligence. So I think we've reached a point where there's no question that these laws are antiquated and that they're every year they're less effectively serving the intent and uh and, and let's just hope they really move forward on on some of these fronts now you mentioned some of these different ways that people are investing you know obviously our audience um you know most people listening to this probably came to us through solo401k.com so they have a self-directed IRA with mm-hmm. us or they have a solo 401k and so they have these tax advantage funds always looking for places to invest them you know, in your view, for, for someone with their self-directed IRA or 401k checkbook, why is farmland an important investment for them to consider? Um, yeah, so I think one is just by its nature. I think farmland is, uh, in my view, a really good asset for retirement investing. It is very long-term. Uh, it's kind of invest and forget. You invest into a pecan orchard. That thing produces for 30, 50 years. You invest into a cornfield. I mean, those things just 10 century later, they'll be pumping out corn, soybeans. And so it's one of those 
when you think about just the total cost of managing your portfolio, this is one of those invest and forget where you don't need to really worry about it. Um, secondly, I think that um, people already have um, a lot of funds in their retirement accounts. And as they look to rebalance them, reposition, um, I think farmland through that integration that we have you know, with you guys, um, it, it kind of is just a quick and easy add as well. Um, and then of course, you know, the tax benefits, uh, sorry, the, the IRA tax benefits, solar 401k tax benefits are quite attractive um, for farmland as well. So we, we actually, I would say, don't, don't quote me on this. I mean, I know we are on a podcast, but probably 20 to 30% of our investors use some sort of, you know, tax advantaged accounts, uh, IRAs, solar 401ks. Um, Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe that'll go up after the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> well, you know, it's something that you you know you just mentioned how quick and easy it is, and uh, you know, one thing that sort of is a little pet peeve for me is just the broadness with which people use the the label real estate investor. So sometimes when you talk to a real estate investor, it's just a guy or a gal who writes a check. Maybe it's a crowdfunding platform that's you know similar to Farm Together. But there's also a lot of people who say, I'm a real estate investor, and they don't spend their time writing a check or you know just doing research. They spend their time driving around, going to auctions. You know, like when you watch them doing their quote unquote investing, it's definitely not a passive activity. It's a very, you know, labor intensive process to the point where they might even be, you know, swinging the hammer, laying down the floor, putting in that sweat equity in some ways. Um, so, you know, I just kind of wanted to point out for people wondering how this compares to real estate investing. Well, uh, at least with Farm Together, it's totally passive where this is, you know, fully managed by people who already know what they're doing with farmland. Um, any comment on that and any other differences that really stand out worth highlighting for someone who's familiar with real estate investing uh, to compare and contrast to the farmland? Um, I would say it, it, is, it is similar in a lot of ways. What we do um, is one, um, we provide a lot of information uh, but in a very clean and simple way on how to think about each investment. What are the key risks? Is there debt, no debt? Is it you know a rental or a directly operated model? What crop is it? Um, and secondly, we just try to make it simple because at the end of the day, look, the reality is a lot of people are just trusting us in our investment acumen in selecting and managing the right deals. So just to touch on that, uh, I, our investment director, our COO, our advisors, very involved consultants combined, we have over $1.2 billion of experience investing in the ag and food space. Um, specifically, if we talk permanent crops, our investment director deployed almost quarter of a, a billion in the space. We work with uh, farmers that go back generations, I mean, fifth generation farmers who operate land for large institutions. Uh, so there is a certain level of um, well, not a certain, a very high level of rigor that we put into every deal, into how we think about it, source, underwrite. And so the deals that you see, um, there's still, of course, as in any investing, certain risks, but 
uh, if you're seeing an almond orchard, it's going to be a good almond orchard. If you're seeing a cornfield, it's probably a field that was has good soil, great operator, acquired oftentimes uh, below market due to our proprietary relationships and technology. Um, and so we we hope that, of course, people educate themselves. Um, they really learn the key risks in this type of investing, but that they also do due diligence on us, on our team, because that's a lot of what matters as well, and you know, come to trust us as well. Yeah, there's something that's come up a couple of times. I want to bring it up now, uh, and that is water. So, you know, a year and a half ago or so, I was at a family office meeting with a bunch of different people who had investment deals, and the one that you know, there is one that stood out to me, and it was a guy with an almond orchard. And he just said really plainly, Jeff, this is a water deal. And, um, you know, this is really just an investment in water. Uh, you mentioned something similar earlier. Can you explain that to someone and connect the dots on how are some farmland deals really an investment in water? Yes. So water is a big input uh, in growing food, of course. And... Um, what you have sometimes is that you are de facto trading or exporting water. Um, maybe to give an example, uh, a little bit unusual example, but Canada has tremendous resources of water. And so some things when you grow there, you could grow them anywhere else, but you don't have the water there. And so you are kind of investing half of that into the water resource that is implied in the, you know, the almond that you eat. You know, your almonds have bad reputation sometimes for consuming too much water, which actually compared to a lot of other produce items, they, they don't. But um, that's what's important here. So what, what we do when we look at places like California, where water, of course, is important, it is a big part of our analysis. And we look at farms that have resilient, long-term, sustainable access to water. Because when we talk about risks and we talk about how land has a lot of that principal value, that is hard to destroy. Well, one way though to destroy it is to buy it, invest in in the land that will not have water in the future. And that's a lot of the work we do is analyzing the regulations on state level, climate change patterns, um, and the allocation of water, the hydrological resources to invest in farms that have water that will be there essentially forever. For the any any forever that matters um and that's really important so i think uh, uh, in in those places like california west coast arizona uh, that's one of the first things you should look at as well um, and uh, uh, we describe kind of how we do that analysis so um less so it's almost the other way around if you think about some places in in washington uh midwest where you have too much water and you actually need to invest in tiling and drainage so that the water flows you know at an angle and kind of can leave the farms you can actually plant <laughs> so i mean weather right nature um, interesting what you know what i like about the crowdfunding approach that you're taking is that when somebody's just writing a $25,000 check you know and, and maybe they want to allocate 75,000 to farmland you know they can geographically diversify and maybe one deal can be in the southwest one deal can be in the pacific northwest one deal can be out east or something and, you know, then you have some weather event uh, and it, it's unlikely to happen to all three deals. That's right. I think, look, as in any asset class, diversification is also important within the asset class. So diversification by geographies, by crops, um, which is what we always aim to offer is important. 
And uh, if you kind of are on our portal, on our website, we tend to put out deals that are somewhat different. And so uh, we want to make it so that over, let's say over the course of a year, you have plenty of deals to look at. You can pick and choose maybe a few that speak to you. You know, I love hazelnuts and I can't get enough of them. <laughs> maybe you love almonds. And then kind of start building uh, overall portfolio that fits your hold periods, your risk uh, criteria, your cash return criteria. And there's different people. There's people that just want that price appreciation. They don't mind the long dated deal that is all development, but they want to get that you know, high return at the end of the day. There's other people who are looking for that immediate cash flow right now tomorrow that is well protected, that will grow a little bit with inflation. And that's, for example, you know, current, our current deal, a row crop farm, which in my view is kind of better than the, the tips, inflation protected <laughs> uh, instruments, bonds. So there's there's something for everyone. I mean, farmland isn't homogenous and there's same as in real estate, right? You have your office space, your multifamily, your single family, your storage, <laughs> your industrial. Uh, same exists for farmland. Yeah, I th- I don't know if an office building right now is going to have be offices in ten years, but a piece of farmland is most likely going to be a piece of farmland. So I think that's a little bit comforting. Um, Artem, here we're getting close to wrapping up. Um, one thing that I've noticed throughout the conversation is you uh, definitely are passionate about what you do, and I'm curious: was there a certain you know period of your life or a certain experience that sort of opened your uh, opened your eyes or had an impact you on you in some way to inspire you to found farm together i think it's um my still really strong belief that the prosperity is a function of proper allocation of resources to a certain extent you know if we look at the wealth that exists in the world i mean we already have enough resource to get rid of hunger, homelessness, poverty. So it's just really sad to see that's still not the case. And, you know, in my life, I'd like to contribute to that mission. Uh, and right now um, I see that opportunity in farming and farmland where there's such tremendous inefficiencies in, in capital and technology. Uh, you know, farmers who are extremely capable, smart people uh, cannot grow their businesses. They don't get, you know, the, the best um, uh, backing as well. Um, so it's just really exciting to build something that touches such fundamentals part of our lives. You know, it's an honor to do that and to be part of so many big problems um, that we're facing and offer solutions to those problems. It's climate change, sustainability, food security, food safety, um, kind of the, you know, solving things like food deserts and diversity of, of our diet, um, working and uh, uplifting, you know, the rural economy back. I think it's it's really cool. So just uh, I love big problems, <laughs> um, and this one is definitely a big one, and so it's exciting. And yeah, I'm mean, very grateful to be working on it. Awesome. Well, Artem, we really want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And for our listeners, what's the best way for people to learn more? Uh, farmtogether.com. Uh, reach out to us at info at farmtogether.com. Uh, email me personally. It's Artem. Uh, a is in Apple. R is in Romeo. T is in Tango. A is in Echo. M is in Michael at farmtogether.com. Uh, we also hold frequent webinars. Uh, we write a lot of articles on our blog, uh, educating people um, on different aspects of farming. You can follow our Instagram, Farm Together, Facebook. So we put out some inspirational pictures from the fields we see and just uh, images and photos that we find that we find really uh Talk to also the you know the emotional aspects of this and it's so many beautiful landscapes and 
you know, the open open road and open spaces, uh, the beautiful orchards. So just sharing a little bit of what we find exciting and motivating and inspirational in the space. So not just you know boring numbers, but <laughs> a little bit of the the life, the day to day life in this areas too. Cool, awesome. Thanks so much, Artem. Okay, that was a good one. Man, everyone needs to eat. That really stuck out to me. Everyone needs to eat and the population keeps growing and they're not creating any more land. Right. And the other, you know, there are a lot of things kind of uh, intersecting, you know, that Artem talked about there with, you know, the farmers are aging, something like two thirds of farms are going to be changing hands. So there's all this disruption and who owns the farmland. People are worried about climate change. Now we have tech. One thing that we kind of alluded to that I really you know, think is a big deal is this Jobs Act where it's making it easy for these crowdfunding sites like Farm Together to operate. And throughout this whole confluence of events, we're in the middle of a crisis and people want a stable and predictable investment. Well, and not only that, but when you have um, organizations or platforms like Farm Together, it takes something that would seem like, I don't even know how I'm supposed to find a farm deal. And now Artem has created this platform, which makes it very accessible for people. And I hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast with Artem Milinchuk of Farm Together. And of course, they're at farmtogether.com. Check them out. Thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying what you're listening to, please do write us a five-star review. On You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and we look forward to... Yeah, the easy button is just just rate us five stars. Okay. And then if you have some time on your hands, another minute, then, then do the review too. Yeah. That would enough. really help us. And overall, you know, if you think other people should hear opportunities like this, and if you want to help us, uh, you know, gather the resources to bring you more great guests, then that five-star review would really help and we appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. See ya.